Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. Here's a music joke. Um, what do you call perfect pitch? It's when you throw a banjo in the garbage and it hits an accordion. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and from APM American Public Media, this is The Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win this week's dinner parties. You just got a joke from musician Ben Johnson. He doesn't play the banjo. That'll help break the ice. His band Pre-War just released their new album, My Friend the Enemy. Later, we'll speak with actor Michael Shannon, star of HBO's Boardwalk Empire, and the new movie, The Iceman. And also, by the way, the star of the viral video of the week, right? In which he yeah. he does a dramatic reading of a note written by an insane <laughs> sorority girl. He's on all our screens. He's got the zeitgeist covered. That's right. Also coming up, actor Hugh Dancy lists some good bad guys. And travel writer Paul Theroux tells us where not to go. But first, as at any dinner party, we start with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. President Obama meets with Enrique Peña Nieto for the first time since the Mexican president took office. Three more suspects in the case of the Boston Marathon bombings. Jason Collins became the first man still active in a major team sport to come out. Now for a story you might not have heard, we are talking with Pat Morrison of the L.A. Times and the L.A. public radio station KPCC. Pat, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? This is truly a hidden story. This is an underground fallout shelter whose contents were just unearthed. Mm, Where was this? This is in a backyard in Wisconsin. And here's the thing. They knew it was there when they bought the house in 1999, but they only just now opened it up to see what was there. So this is a private residence? Private residence. Turned out this was built in 1960. It had its own ventilation system, its own electricity, and get this, a telephone line. Wait, what are those? I'm not familiar with them. (laughs) So let me get this straight. These people lived in a house for decades, and they never checked what was in the bunker in the backyard. That's that's frightening. Yeah, the the original family could still be down there. And they they found floating in water these watertight containers of supplies for to help you ride out the Holocaust. You know, the nuclear Holocaust. What kind of supplies were in these uh, containers? There was Hawaiian punch. There was coffee. It was a very optimistic structure. I don't think they would have survived very long. <laughs> Can you imagine being a little kid eating that much sugar in a fallout shelter? You'd be like, apocalypse is awesome. Your parents would run out the door. <laughs> it made me think of Slim Pickens in Dr. Strangelove. Fellow could have a pretty good weekend in Vegas with that stuff. <laughs> I remember from my youth seeing fallout shelter signs still on, you know, public buildings and things. My house growing up had a fallout shelter. Really? A real fallout shelter, except... It had a window. (laughs) Wait, how can it be real with the window? I don't know. Even as a kid, I figured there was something wrong. (laughs) My brother and I would sneak in, take the the cans of apricots and peaches down, and eat them, except we would open them from the bottom and then put them back on the (laughs) shelf. So if there had been a nuclear disaster, we would have had no dessert. You would have had such a hiding. Damn kids. (laughs) Wow. Pat Morrison... Thanks for the small talk. Love to confess. And now, time for cocktails. Not fruit cocktail, because Pat ate it. Once again, we tell you something that happened in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's like history is a water park, where all the slides are awash with booze. Mm. Sounds like a dream. Adult-only water park. All right, first the history. Right around this time back in 1987, New Jersey became the third state to mandate trash recycling. But what's really conversation-worthy is why. Michelle Philippi tells the tale. Next time you recycle, thank the Mobro 4000. 
No, it's not some kind of robot. It was a barge. And in March 1987, it set sail from New York State, loaded with over 3,000 tons of rotting municipal garbage. The plan was to float the Mobro to North Carolina, where it'd be used in a pilot program to create methane gas for power. But when it arrived, protesters did too. Some worried the garbage contained hazardous waste. Others said North Carolina had plenty of garbage of its own to deal with. Suddenly, the Mobro was a political hot potato. Politicians told it to shove off. So began a six-month journey. With news cameras watching, the increasingly stinky barge floated over to Louisiana. Then Florida. No takers. And when a rumor spread the Mobro might head to Mexico, Mexico sent out the Navy to make sure it didn't. The Gar Barge became a symbol of overconsumption and of America's supposedly dwindling landfill space. It was a big reason some states started mandatory recycling. Meanwhile, the Mobro wound up right back where it started, New York City, where the trash was burned. So that was the history. Now for the drink. On the line is Amir Rivera. He is a bartender at Mahogany in Belize, another country that refused the garb barge. Amir, what cocktail did that story inspire you to make? I made one called Better No Litter, or in Creole, one of the languages in Belize, Better No Litter. Better Not Litter. It's a drink and a warning. Yeah. Uh, I'm I'm assuming that there is not actual litter in this drink. No, no, not at all. <laughs> it, it involves a rum called um, One Barrel. One Barrel Rum, okay. Yeah, dark rum. Like like the dark sea, perhaps. Yeah, and you add like an ounce of coconut rum, a little bit of uh, creme de banana. Okay, so very tropical. Yeah, and to take up the sweetness a little bit, add in some cranberry. It's a little bit sour. And where's the where's the garbage part? Okay, so you chop up pineapple with the skin, like in little chunks. And you just throw it in the cocktail, so it'll be like... Um, <laughs> so you put in, the like, the rind of the pineapple into yeah. it? Kind of like f- floating trash. Yeah, yeah, like trash floating in the dark sea, exactly. I like it, but you're not really keeping with the theme, because this actually sounds like something someone might want to drink. They won't reject it, like the barge. Yeah, so you, you needed something that someone wouldn't want to drink? <laughs> you're right, we'll stick with this. Okay. So, Brendan, a couple of things. Firstly, I don't know why there's never been a punk band called Mobro 4000. Or a drum machine. That would work as well. Uh, secondly, it seems to me that what they could have done when the barge went back to New York City was just dock it, wait for all the rats to climb aboard into the trash, and then set sail again. <laughs> Problem solved. That's great. Yeah, it's a win-win. They get a cruise, and New York gets its city back. Enjoy, Brilliant. New York. Let's make it happen. People, uh, our website is crawling with cocktail recipes. Find them all at dinnerpartydownload.org. And now, the guest list, in which an interesting person lists some interesting things. And today, our guest is actor Hugh Dancy. You've seen him in movies like Black Hawk Down and in the TV series The Big C. These days, he stars in NBC's critically acclaimed series Hannibal, It's about the early years of the fictional psychologist-turned-cannibal from Silence of the Lambs. Here's Hugh to tell us about it and to list other really bad, yet really compelling, villains. Hi, I'm Hugh Dancy. I'm in the new TV series Hannibal, 
I play Will Graham, who is an FBI profiler. Might be familiar to anybody who knows uh, Thomas Harris's novel, Red Dragon. But we're telling a, a prequel, the story of how Will and Hannibal Lecter meet uh, and how Hannibal really gets inside Will's head. A little protein scramble to start the day. Some eggs, some sausage. Will is a man who, by dint of a very unusual mind, he's capable of projecting himself into the minds of people that commit violent crimes, and it's one thing that Hannibal finds so so interesting. What Hannibal thinks is, okay, here's somebody that could uh, that could understand me. Here's a pal. I would apologize for my analytical ambush, but I know I will soon be apologizing again, and you'll tire of that eventually, so I have to consider using apologies barely. Just keep it professional. Oh, we could socialize like adults. God forbid we become friendly. I don't find you that interesting. You will. I think that Hannibal Lecter would top many people's lists of great villains. And I think like all great villains, the reason for that is that he is so appealing. He's so seductive. He's doing things and saying things uh, that to some extent we all wish we could do. I say I qualify that. I don't want to eat people, but you know what I mean. One villain I'm certainly drawn to is Iago in Shakespeare's play Othello because famously he's so hard to pin down. It's, it's never quite clear. He offers up various motivations, potential motivations for himself. He claims that Othello maybe cuckled at him. He says of Cassio, so it's a great line, uh, he hath a daily beauty in his life that makes me ugly which is so recognizable of, of just sheer, pure envy, you know, that, that, that envy, that jealousy that he tries to engender in Othello. Thus do I ever make my fool my purse, or I mine own gained knowledge should profane if I would time expend with such a snipe, but for my sport and profit. But because none of these, these excuses or these motives really stand up on their own, you're left, when you peel them away, with this sheer malignancy. I hate... The more. That is just driven to strip and destroy anything noble in the form of Othello, and, and I, I think that's completely fascinating. Another villain, I guess the, the daddy of all villains, is Satan, as described in Paradise Lost. I went to an English boarding school, so we spent a while reading Milton. If you're a a young boy in a British boarding school, you're aspiring to be far more bad than you actually can be. So Satan has a certain appeal there. Some of it really stuck with me, and I really, I do remember those descriptions of Satan. And me preferring his utmost power with adverse power opposed in dubious battle on the plains of heaven and shook his throne. It's a religious poem, and yet Milton was accused of uh, having been of the devil's party. Because, you know, you give them the best lines. It's <laughs> endlessly appealing. Another great villain that, that didn't Im immediately spring to my mind, but, uh, but when I thought about him, pretty much takes the top spot on the list, is Mr. Burns from The Simpsons, uh, because he is ir irredeemably awful. Look at that pig stuffing his face with donuts in my time! That's right. Keep eating. Little do you know you're drawing ever closer to the poison donut. <laughs> there is a poisoned one, isn't there, Smithers? Uh, 
No, sir. I discussed this with our lawyers. They consider it murder. Damn their oily hides! I think that we all recognize Mr. Burns as that character who is, you know, he's out not only for his own good, but for everybody else's bad. And he's so consistent about that and committed that we love him. Hello, Mr. Burns. This is the kidnapper. Do you miss your son? Yes, I'm missing one son. Return it immediately. If you really love Larry, prove it. And you can have him back today. How much proof do you need? 5,000? 6,000? I swear, that's all I've got. Don't you care about your son? This is more important than money. More important than money? Who is this? He has all the best lines. Excellent. He's utterly unapologetic. And, and he's having more fun than everybody else. But he's basically an utterly unreformed... Um, and, and this is a series of words that I probably can't use going through my mind. He's, he's a terrible man. The guest list from Hugh Dancy. He stars in Hannibal, which you can catch Thursday nights on NBC. Shakespeare, Milton, and The Simpsons. Yeah. All the greats. Clearly, they're yeah, they're teaching classics in England still. That's nice. It sounds like they got their homers mixed up there. <laughs> okay, folks, coming up, comic Liz Winstead tells us about a major wardrobe malfunction. Yeah. And after that, travel writer extraordinaire Paul Theroux names a country he won't be heading back to. A tremendous place to write about and a lovely place to leave. Where not to go when the Dinner Party Download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Coming up, comic and daily show creator Liz Winstead tells a revealing story. Michael Shannon confesses he is the nerdiest man ever to play a murderer. And travel writer Paul Theroux schools us on his new book, Last Train to Zona Verde. But first, all aboard the train to our etiquette segment. Yes, each week you send us your question about how to behave. And here to answer them this time around are Lizzie Post and Daniel Post-Senning. They stop by our studios once a month to keep us in line. They're co-authors of the 18th edition of the Manners Manual, Emily Post's Etiquette. And Daniel has a new book out, Manners in a Digital World. Lizzie, Dan, welcome back. Thanks good to so be much. with you. Are you jealous, Lizzie, that Dan has his own book? Come on, guys. I've authored three books. Oh. Dan just has one. That was rude, Rico, that you didn't know that, actually. <laughs> oh. But I think we have some questions that involve digital stuff. Maybe, Dan, you can take this first question. You ready for this? Indeed. This is from Andrew in New York City. And Andrew writes, DPD, I need your help immediately! Exclamation point. I was walking on the street the other day, talking to a professional contact on the phone. Suddenly, I recognized an old friend walking towards me. Panic, what to do? Bumping into a friend you haven't seen in a while in a city of millions is too serendipitous to pass up, yet I couldn't construct an effective way to pause or delay this important phone call. Please help. No problem. This is a great example, a place where traditional etiquette's going to give us some guidance in new territory. So if you were walking down the street talking to your friend, you ran into another friend, you'd introduce mm-hmm. them. You'd use a traditional etiquette. You're not going to have the opportunity because your conversation's happening on a phone. So a different traditional etiquette's going to come into play. Okay. Which is? Magic words. Excuse me? <laughs> Excuse me. Pardon me. Can I ask you to hold for just... I just saw someone I haven't seen in yeah. 20 years. It's magic. So do you defer, though, to the person who's with you in real life instead of the person who's with you digitally? You know, unless this call was super, super important, I'm going to give the real world person some consideration. Well... But it sounds like this call was super important. He's talking to a professional contact on the phone and an old friend. I might think it goes the other way. If it's really important. The professional contact supersedes the real world? Yeah, you'll have plenty of time to see your old friend when you're unemployed. <laughs> oh. You don't handle. Oh, your, 
interactions okay, with... Okay, so here's a suggestion that we live in this awesome digital era right now of all these wonderful social media <laughs> places where people are engaging. So if you lose the chance to say hi to the person that you haven't seen in 20 years, definitely it's a great reminder. You know, look them up on Facebook, look for them on Twitter, try to find them through a social media outlet. All right, Andrew, there's some guidance for you. (laughs) Uh, All right, we have a question from Robert in Pittsburgh. Robert writes, I have a good college friend who is just an outright humble bragger. Should I somehow point this out to her? I feel like we're not quite close enough for me to just outright say this to her without hurting her feelings or seeming like a jerk. And we should add humble bragging, which you see a lot mentioned on Twitter, is like saying something that seems like you're being humble, but in fact it's an indirect way of pumping yourself up. Could you use it in a sentence? Yeah, you'd say, uh, <laughs> dinner again with Barack Obama. Ugh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So over it. Wish, wish I could be home with the family. Exactly. Okay. This is one of those things where I think it depends on how well you know this person person and how comfortable you are with them before you start actually correcting the way they choose to say things. A lot of the times we say humor can solve any situation, but you have to be really careful when you choose to use it. You're not guaranteed that that tease about it, you know, as a way to just awaken them to what they're doing is going to be received well. So you've got this little balance at play, a little earnest advice, but with maybe a little good humor. So maybe somebody humble brags and you say, hmm, if you do say so yourself. Yes, that's a cute... It's kind of cute. It's a little a little witty, you know, but it's yeah. not also personal. But isn't the humble brag itself kind of a bastardized piece of etiquette? So I'm proud that I'm having dinner with Barack Obama. Yeah, that's And I true. want to tell my friends, but I know that might seem a little yeah. gauche. At the same time, when it's gotten to a point where we've invented a new term for how much people are doing this or how often people are doing this, it's probably time to dial it back. And I guess on the part of the person who's doing the humble bragging, though, is the solution to just own it, you know, say, hey, this is pretty awesome. I had dinner with the Obamas the other night. I think that's an interesting thing about society right now is that it's almost like it's become not allowed or somehow really uncool to take ownership and excitement in something. I I Mm. hope that we're starting to break away from that. Brag more, guys. Brag more and own it. (laughs) Um, All right. Here's our last question. This is from Brendan in Brooklyn. Who's that? Hmm. Oh, wow. That's interesting. I I don't know who that could be. Well, anyway, Brendan writes, a bunch of my friends have campaigns on Kickstarter. They're for good causes, but it would be impossible to donate to all or even most of them. Now, though, I feel like my decision not to give has started to sour some of these relationships. How should I navigate these requests? Sounds like... Brendan's in a pickle. What, what, what a yeah. thoughtful and, mm. and intelligent and sensitive young man this Brendan is. I, don't know. I like Brendan. I think he sounds a little boorish and mean. <laughs> I think Brendan probably doesn't make enough money to give <laughs> money to all of his friends, but, you know, cares about them and will support them in any other way. I feel like Brendan makes a lot of excuses. <laughs> and I think Brendan lives in a part of the country that has the second highest number of Kickstarter campaigns per capita in the country only to Vermont. Oh, oh wow. So there's a problem for Brendan. So, so seriously, how should this guy proceed? So, I mean, he's clearly a good-looking, smart, young you guy. You can tell With that some from financial difficulties. <laughs> so charitable giving is a really <laughs> personal <laughs> decision. You never have to share mm-hmm. about your charitable giving. You should never feel obligated to, to give. It, that's a, a personal finance decision. And with it being so much easier today to ask for money and start a, a, a nonprofit campaign through social media, it's so important that we take asking for money seriously and that people who start these campaigns, that they treat their donors with respect, that they thank them afterwards, that the internet isn't just a cash cow that we can all plug into at our leisure. But can't they tell, so if you launched a campaign and you invited Rico and I to maybe donate, you can tell if we didn't donate. And if I was taking my campaign seriously, I would know that that's really a choice that's up to you. 
and that I can ask, but I have to be willing to accept the answer that, that you give. And that might be that you just hmm. don't respond. I will say, though, that, you know, I've been invited to Kickstarter campaigns, given to some, not given to others. I've never really had a backlash for not donating. Are you actually, I'm sorry, is Brendan the <laughs> unknown special listener with a kind of iffy haircut? Well, I it's just say that social pressure. if a Kickstarter campaign is about someone's art as opposed to a business, I think it gets even touchier, right? Because Ooh. it's almost you're rejecting their creative project. I, th- I mm. think I'm going to get real with you for a minute. I think you're taking it too personally. I think you need to just donate to what you can. Excuse me. I think Brendan needs to just donate to what he can, not worry about what he can't, mm. and be supportive by spreading the word about this person's artwork. All right. Well, I'm going to start a Kickstarter campaign for a therapist because clearly <laughs> yeah, I, I have pers- For Brendan. <laughs> I'm schizophrenic. I mean, Brendan. <laughs> this Brendan guy needs some help. Lizzie and Dan, thanks so much for coming by and helping me. I mean, Brendan yeah. and uh, our other <laughs> listeners. You are most welcome. Thank you. And folks, if you have a question about how to behave, but specifically not a request for money for your art project, no. then we want to hear it. Yeah, you can send us your etiquette questions by heading to our website, dinnerpartydownload.org, just like Brendan did. And now, time to eavesdrop. Humorist Liz Winstead co-created Comedy Central's The Daily Show... Her book, Liz, Free or Die, comes out in paperback this week. But before she made it in showbiz, she was a fledgling comic living in Minneapolis. Here's a story about the gig that broadened her exposure. So my very first paying gig in comedy was at a venue in Minneapolis called First Avenue, which is not a comedy venue per se. It's mostly a music venue. Now, most people would know this venue as the club that was featured in Prince's movie Purple Rain. very huge thing that was going on in the 1980s was was something called the Great Pretenders, which was a air guitar contest. And in Minneapolis, it was giant. And they got all the local celebrities to be the judges. And so my very first paying gig was that I was the host of the finals of the Great Pretenders, which I thought was the Oscars. It was so incredible. And of course, it was the 80s. So I went to a thrift store and got this crazy used wedding dress. And I looked like a total ridiculous human being. It was August. Hot dog days of August. The air conditioning was out at the club. I've got layers and layers and layers of this dress on. And I'm sweating through the whole thing. So I thought, you know what? What could go wrong in a club full of 1,500 people if I just take off my tights and go commando underneath these layers and layers and layers of wedding dress? Well, of course nothing. So... I'm announcing the first act. I got a few laps. I set up the night. Things were going great. And behind me is a giant video screen. As I introduce the first act, the video screen rolls up. And so the video screen slowly goes up behind me. And I realize the back of this massive wedding dress is rolling up in the screen And the mechanism is pulling the dress, and the dress is ripping in the front. And all of a sudden, I realize I'm three inches off the ground, and the mechanism breaks. And there I am, hanging, naked, in front of 1,500 people. And they're all laughing. And it felt like that scene in the movie Carrie, where she's just standing there, 
and she doesn't know what to do. But I realize that if I do nothing, this moment will define me forever. So I just kept talking. I just kept telling jokes. And that carry metaphor kept running in my head. And so I finally just said, well, I guess you can't see my dirty pillows, at least. And then the audience burst out laughing. And I thought, um, oh, oh, wow, they're laughing. I'm not sure if they're laughing at me. So I just kept talking. I kept going kind of with the carry metaphor. Well, uh, I'm waiting for the bucket of pig's blood. Is that what's next? And then they were laughing again. And I heard one guy in the audience say, oh, my God, I think she planned this. They were laughing. And I felt like I had won them over. But I was pretty much out of carry jokes. And at that moment, thank God, the stage manager came up the stairs, cut my mic, and he whispers in my ear, I have to cut you out of the dress. And then the dress is going to fall and you're going to put my shirt on. And thank God he had a long cowboy shirt on and I had some combat boots on, so it all worked out. So he buttoned me up in his shirt, ripped the miles of fabric out of the screen, and boom, the screen came back down, the video was rolling, he signaled to the booth, get her mic back on, and the audience was mine. Comedian Liz Winstead, a version of that tale appears in her book, Liz Free or Die, which came out in paperback this week. And you're listening to The Dinner Party Download from American Public Media. Hey, is it cold in here? Uh, you're not wearing any pants. Oh. And now, time for Chattering Class, the part of the show when we're schooled by an expert in some dinner party-worthy topic. This week, our topic is Africa and traveling through it. And we could have no better teacher than our guest, writer Paul Theroux. He has written many best-selling novels, including The Mosquito Coast. He's also considered one of the world's greatest travel writers. He's written 17 nonfiction books about his journeys. The latest comes out this week. It is called The Last Train to Zona Verde, My Ultimate African Safari. And Paul, welcome back to the show. Thank you very much, Rico. Great to be here. You actually began your traveling life in Africa as a member of the Peace Corps, I believe. Is it in the 60s? It was 50 years ago, 1963. It was sent to a country called Nyasaland, which about six months later uh, became independent uh, Republic of Malawi. Oh, wow. But it was, yeah, it was 63. That, that determined the direction in my life. Uh, joining the Peace Corps was a great thing going far, far away from home and to this place that hadn't been written about much. Of course. At all, actually, in the Asaland. <laughs> so I was going into virgin territory for as far as I was concerned. And the Peace Corps taught us a language. So I had a language. I had a new place. I had friends. I was hopeful. And for 50 years, I've been going back to Africa. And, and you sort of cast this book as your sort of final return. Why is this your final return to Africa. It's not a final return. I think I think it's my the the end of my of nine hour bus rides to nowhere where you uh, <laughs> you you awaken at four or five in the morning in a horrible place. Get fight your way onto a bus. You get biffed and pushed, and children puking behind you. And then you ride for nine hours to another place. Sign me up. So I I intend to revisit Africa, but as far as writing about a, a long overland trip, no, that's it. This is it. I went from Cape Town to the northern part of Angola, and that's it. Obviously, you have some negative impressions in this book of the continent. But let's the journey begins in South Africa, where you had, had traveled 10 years before. It's a sometimes bleak picture of the place, but you still decide that place is moving in a hopeful direction. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I don't feel bleak about South Africa. I think South Africa, you know, a lot of problems that are being faced 
in South Africa and Angola and lots of parts of the world are the same ones that we face here in the States. If you go to Alabama or Mississippi, what's the problem? A high infant mortality rate, poor medical care, education uh, not up to standard. So the, I mean, these are problems that you meet in lots of other countries. Um, I didn't, I, as far as South Africa goes, I thought there were a lot of improvements. I In 10 years, a lot of the places that I saw that were slum developments, they had been improved. You know, there were there were houses where there had been shacks, piped water where there had been just, you know, nothing. Indeed. So that's an improvement. But you do not, uh, obviously, have always such a hopeful feeling about the rest of the continent. Those who think that this is a book about, you know, sweeping vistas and exotic animals safari will be rather shocked by some of the events and places you describe. You actually ultimately cut the trip short. For the reasons that you've previously mentioned, obviously, it's it's just a, a yeah. difficult way of traveling. But were you surprised as a man who's traveled all over the world that you ended up cutting this trip short? No, no. You At, at some pace, everyone gets to the end of the line. And I, I got to the end of the line. You mentioned people going to Africa to look at wild animals. Well, there are no wild animals in Angola. Angola is a gigantic country. Hmm. And there are no elephants, lions, you know, monkeys there. There's nothing. There's nothing. They've all been eaten poached or they've been blown up by landmines. So you go to Angola, which is very wealthy, but the people are very poor and there's no wild animals and there are no tourists there. So that, I mean, that's kind of an interesting discovery. But I also thought uh, maybe this is the end of the road. Yeah, did- and it was for me. I, I'm not too old to travel. I'm just too, too old to be abused, <laughs> uh, <laughs> traveling xenophobic places where, where I'm not learning anything except this is a horrible xenophobic place. I said earlier that you'd be teaching us about Africa and traveling through it. For me, the most interesting writing in the book, though, is was when you grapple with being a tourist in such a conflicted continent. I feel there's a lot of you trying to avoid either romanticizing or demonizing or oversimplifying all the contradictions of the place. What was the hardest country or situation for you to capture the truth of? I would say it's Angola. Uh, I lived for, uh, for years in East and Central Africa in places that they, they were begging for, for some sort of answer to their prayers. They thought if only you would discover oil or gold or diamonds. All right. Well, Angola has two million barrels of oil a day. They have lots of diamonds. They have plenty of gold. Has it solved their problems? No, it hasn't. It's made them worse. So it's a country with lots of money and lots of poverty, with uh, a government that hates foreigners and yet does business with them all the time. The roads are terrible. The schools are terrible. And yet they have tons of money. So to wrap your head around, and and they had 27 years of war. So that's one of the reasons. But they haven't had any war lately. So I would say, yeah, Angola is a place I always wanted to go. And I found it to be a tremendous place to write about and a lovely place to leave. I see. On the other hand, you've been to places in your travels that I'm sure have, you know, been uh, very down on their luck at one point in time and they've, you know, turned into wonderful destinations. Do you think that that's possible with any of these regions in Africa? Definitely. Definitely. Uh, I was in Vietnam during the war. It was horrendous. Horrendous. I, I can't tell you how dismal and dangerous it was. I went back a few years ago when I wrote Ghost Train to the Eastern Star. It has become a country with tourists, with manufacturing, and with no blame. So <laughs> Americans that gave them Agent Orange and Napalm are now, you know, asked, do you want some noodles? Right. There's plenty to see there. There's plenty to do. So if, if Vietnam can transform itself from a war zone to a prosperous and felicitous country, then that can happen. Any, any country in Africa can manage that.
writer Paul Theroux. His new book is called Last Train to Zona Verde. And we're going to take a quick break. Coming up, rocker Michael Cronin suggests some tunes for your dinner party. We check in on the biscuit biz, and actor Michael Shannon tells us about how he maintains work-life balance. That's the main thing. At the end of the day, you always give the gun back to the prop master. Wise. All that and more when the dinner party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Later, pop rocker Michael Cronin suggests some tunes to play at your next dinner party. But first, it's time to meet our guest of honor. And this week, it's actor Michael Shannon. In the HBO series Boardwalk Empire, he plays the tormented ex-lawman Nelson Van Alden. He co-starred in the movie Revolutionary Road, for which he earned an Oscar nomination. Later this summer, he plays the villain General Zod in the new Superman movie, Man of Steel. And this week, his film, The Iceman, hits theaters in which he plays the real-life hitman Richard Kuklinski. But none of this would have happened if not for public radio. Of course. Of course. (laughs) The other day, I met him at his home and spoke with him about it. My very first piece of dramatic literature was a monologue from... Lake Wobegon Days by Garrison Keillor. I never performed it for anybody, actually. I just practiced it in my bedroom. You were on a speech team? Yeah, a speech team, and they have a, a category for monologues. Speech team sounds intense, although it sounds like something the average public radio listener probably is a fan, more fan of speech team than, like, say, football. Yeah, I'd say most people that listen to public radio probably were on speech team at some point. <laughs> I was on debate club. Oh, debate club. I was intimidated of that. I didn't really have any passionate feelings about anything, so I don't think I would have been a good debater. Well, speaking of not having passionate feelings, uh, in this movie, The Iceman, you play Richard Kuklinski, who was a serial killer who was known for his icy demeanor, hence his name, The Iceman. Uh, He killed without remorse, and then he would go home and be a family guy. He could totally compartmentalize these two worlds. Yeah, it may not be quite as uh, black and white as it is in the film. There's a little bit of, well, a medium amount of poetic license in the film. But yeah, that's the idea, is that he had a double life. Now, I know you don't kill people for a living, but as an actor, you have to go, in, in this instance, you had to act like a guy who killed people all day, and then you have to come home to your family. Do you have any rituals for, for decompressing, or, or is it pretty seamless? Well, I just leave the weapons at work. That's the main thing. At the end of the day, you always give the, the gun back to the prop master. That's a good way to stay out of trouble. As an actor, is it harder to play someone who already exists, like Richard Kuklinski? It is very uh, nerve-wracking for me, you know, particularly if I meet the person, like with Kim Fowley in The Runaways. In the movie The Runaways, he was the record producer in real life who produced the band The Runaways. Yes. I actually sat down and had dinner with him, and he, like, told me his whole life story. And he brought all these photo albums and newspaper clippings. And then at the end of it, he said, you know, the way I'm going to be remembered is this movie, so please don't mess it up. I said, thanks a lot. It's nice to meet you. And then I went in the bathroom and vomited, you know. It's like, it's very nerve-wracking. And the thing is, is like, with Kuklinski, it's doubly nerve-wracking because he's a real person, and yet he's a very mysterious person that nobody really knows the truth about. But uh, I feel a huge obligation to make sure I'm not completely... Missing the boat, yeah. So you're in The Iceman. This summer, you're going to be in Man of Steel, the big Superman film. 
But you got your start in theater. You started a theater company in Chicago. You still perform on Broadway. I've heard actors say they prefer theater because it's more of an actor's medium. Do you agree? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, film is, is very technical, and it involves a lot of patience. You know, there's a lot of times where I'll feel inspiration coming on. I feel like I finally figured something out, and then I still have another half hour to wait before we actually shoot anything, and, and then I get distracted or tired, and it goes away. And then by the time someone's actually saying action, I'm just completely uh, numb and my head is totally empty. So then you're just kind of faking it. And then you get to do a retake, though, if you like, on like a play where it's just once you're on, you're on. Yeah, but at the end of the day, that's it. With the play, you can really, you're really hunting for the true essence of something. And you get that opportunity unless you close the day after you open or something. You mean because of the duration of a play you're going to be doing... Uh, one particular scene maybe 25 times as opposed to one afternoon. Well, yeah, I mean, you take something like Killer Joe. I did Killer Joe, the play, 400 times. It wasn't always easy, but I never got bored of doing it, ever. So we have uh, two standard questions on our show, and the first question is, what question are you tired of being asked in interviews? When are you going to do a romantic comedy? People genuinely ask you that? yeah. And it's an idiotic question that displays very little knowledge of the field that I'm in. Well, I, I don't know a lot about it, so tell me. There's no studio head that would greenlight a picture. Okay, here it is. It's like Jennifer Aniston. She just broke up with her boyfriend. She goes to the Shake Shack, and there's Michael Shannon. That sounds good. No, that, see, that, that would never happen. That's not going to happen because that's not the trajectory you have in Hollywood, or that's not going to happen because that's just not... Michael Shannon does not look the part of romantic lead. Oh, I'm not good looking enough? <laughs> no, that's not what I was saying. That, no, that's fair. <laughs> I don't know. There's like five guys that do it, and those are the five guys that do it. All right, so we, we have another standard question, which is tell us something we don't know, and this can be a fact about you that you haven't shared in interviews, or it can be an interesting fact about the world at large. I used to play the viola. In, in grade school, high school? At my, my junior high school in Kentucky. And I played the viola. So is this pre-speech team? Yeah, it is, actually. Seventh grade was orchestra, and eighth grade was speech team. You play some pretty tough, intense physical guys. You were doing some kind of nerdy activities back in junior high. When I was a kid, I was very incredibly, profoundly unathletic. I mean, it's one of the reasons I wound up in speech team to begin with. Does that 15-year-old kind of get a kick when people are threatened by you and, and based on the characters you've played? Well, yeah, I suppose, yeah. I mean, I'm really, I'm not a violent person. Yeah, it's so ironic that I've wound up in this position. But I am very, I guess, operatic in my feelings sometimes. But I would never, I would never hurt somebody. Well, that's good to know, because when I made that romantic comedy comment, I was a little scared for a second. <laughs> Yeah, well, you got insurance, right? I'm sure you work for public radio. You must have really good health insurance. They'll have a fun drive for me if something goes wrong. Good. And Rico, proof that Michael is as nice as he says he is. All right. Right before our interview, he tended to his daughter's pet snail. He missed Aww. it. Yeah. Really with water? It's a snail, though. Yeah, it's a city kid. <laughs> obviously. <laughs> and right after our interview, two little girls knocked on his door selling raffle tickets for a school fundraiser, and he spent all the cash he had on tickets. That's adorable. 
So, yeah. so like Lake Wobegon had a bigger influence on him than the Iceman, apparently. Let's let's hope so. <laughs> And now, it's time for the main course, where we talk about one of our favorite parts of a dinner party, the food. Yes, and Brendan, you're probably aware the dishes and the flavors of the American South are all the rage in the food world right now. Oh, yeah. They're seeping into everything. Here in L.A., I had a maple fried chicken taco the other day. That's for real. I had a deep fried martini just the other night. (laughs) Nice. With okra instead of an olive. Yeah, a little toothpick of okra. But the star dish of the Southern Wave, I have to say, is the homey, homely biscuit. Mm. And for evidence, you can just ask Roxana Julepat, baker and owner of the L.A. restaurant Cooks County. Her biscuits are suddenly a huge bestseller. We met up the other day, and I started by asking, what makes a biscuit a biscuit and not, say, a scone? There's two ways to answer that question. The easier one would be... Let's do the easy one. The easy one would be a scone has a lot more sugar. Uh, Also, a scone has sort of like a more sophisticated lineage, uh, while a biscuit is definitely, we could consider American peasant food. That said then, you know, biscuits are becoming extremely popular. Some say, you know, they're sort of overtaking cupcakes. But cupcakes is the same thing. Like, these are things that aren't that hard to make at home, right? Is that true? Well, funny enough, a biscuit takes a lot more to build than a, a cupcake. As, you know, a professional baker is certainly more exciting to make a biscuit than it is to make a cupcake, you know. What about biscuits do you love? You know, the the thing about a biscuit is that in baking you hear a lot of like folk tales of what can go wrong if you don't follow certain mythical steps. In terms of making biscuits, those tales tend to be right on the money. You really, really have to follow the rules to achieve that like glorious biscuit. Why, why specifically do biscuits have to you know, have the mathematically perfect measurements? There's a couple of little things that are happening that are very risky moves. One is the addition of artificial leaveners, which are baking powder, baking soda, salt, right? And the, all those elements react with each other to give the biscuit that lift. But there's also like little awesome steps as well, which is like butter that we have to like work into the flour just so, so that it is the right size so that it can steam up and like create a little bit of more elevation. I'm hearing you say lift, lift, lift. It's like the gymnastics of, of baking. The ideal is to get it high, I guess. When you're talking about a biscuit, you want lightness. You want lightness and cohesiveness. You know, you don't want the biscuit to fall apart, but you want lightness or else it's a hockey puck, right? Every baker I know has a biscuit horror story. Do you, what's yours? Mine was uh, making biscuits for staff meal uh, when I lived in Portland, Oregon for one year. And oh, well, that's okay. Nobody in Portland likes food. They're not critical about anything, really. And uh, not only that, there's like a fascination in Portland, well, with food in general, but a fascination with uh, Southern food. And I happened to work with a southerner who told me, oh, this is how you make a biscuit. And I should have been suspicious because the recipe had three tablespoons of baking powder, which by any standards and whatever the size of a batch is way too much. So you have the opposite effect. You actually have like a collapsing. It rises and then it falls and you have the most horrific metallic taste. Was there a riot? Uh, No, I acted promptly and I threw them away. (laughs) <laughs> thereby averting you know it could have been a high cost of human life yes and total shame you know like i'm new to town i'm from la which is already not very hot in portland and like you're making bad biscuits terrible um what do you do in your biscuits that is you know different than what others do 
Well, we have, I think like the main rules are, well, the size of the butter when you work it and the flour, then the quality of the flour, which we are pretty nerdy about those things. Like our flour is organic and it is pastry flour, which means that it has a lesser amount of protein. Which does what? So like think about a bread and how you want that strong web of flour to like form beautiful sponge-like structure. Here we want the opposite. We want lightness. We want sandiness, like sort of little blankets of dough on top of each other, right? I, I like how you're talking. Can I try one of these things? Let's do that. All right, we are in a separate building. Biscuits are being made. Tell me what's going on. So here I have my assistant who is basically in charge of over 100 biscuits just for the two days that we hold brunch. It is uh, by far our best-selling morning pastry, much to my regret because we don't sell other beautiful things like sticky buns or ginger scones. Um, Why don't you just stop making that stuff and go <laughs> all biscuit? We, we could seriously open the doors and just serve biscuits. Oh man, the oven just got opened. A big industrial pan of golden biscuits. Everybody in Radioland is jealous of me now. And, you know, I definitely, um, this is the only pastry I crave, so I guess I get it, you know? <laughs> like, the first thing I want to do is, like, I like to, like, open it like this, and this is a perfect biscuit. Oh, know? my God. That is almost obscene. <laughs> you just peeled it open. The insides really look moister. Like, you can tell the inside is moister than the outside. Like, you know, like me being the technician in charge of, like, this operation, I will definitely touch it and make sure, like, sorry, I'm now I'm touching the biscuit you're about to eat. <laughs> That's all right. That's, it's been imbued with magic now. Um, I'm going to bite into this, but uh, I know there are some people that would say that it's heresy to eat this without gravy. What do you think? Well, you know, what can I say? I'm from L.A. Like, I run 15 miles a week. You think I'm going to put gravy on a biscuit? <laughs> All right. For the health conscious, I'm only going to eat this butter-packed pastry without gravy. Oh, man. That is just the best thing to wake up to that I can imagine. Very light. Good. Uh, now I have a question for you. How long do you think this trend is going to last? Is it going to be the 10 years that Cupcakes had had? Do you really hope so? It seems like, you know, maybe you would like people to start eating some of your other stuff. I really, Yeah, sure. But, you know, if they come here for the biscuit, they might be inspired to have a jelly donut, don't you think? So, Brendan, I brought back some of Roxanne's amazing biscuits to the office to eat mm -hmm. while I worked. And I think my keyboard still has a thin coating of butter on it days nice. later. Yeah. You can fry that up with some okra. That's good eating, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> All right, ladies and gentlemen, we've met our guest of honor. We've baked up some grub. One thing remains for a perfect dinner party, some music to play. For that, we turn to Michael Cronin. He plays with a number of groups, including the Thai Siegel Band. Last year, he released his first solo album, and this week he releases a follow-up. Here he is with some song suggestions. Hey, this is Michael Cronin. I have a new album out called MC2, and this is my dinner party soundtrack. First song is See My Baby Jive by Wizard. Wizard is Roy Wood's band after he left ELO. Saw a great YouTube video of them performing it with the bass player wearing angel wings and roller skates. And Roy Wood is a crazy looking guy. Giant hair, glam makeup, it's beautiful. It's a good song to start out the dinner over the clatter of the kitchen. 
It's just an exciting, horn-heavy pop song. I often dance to this song, even by myself, in my room. It's kind of irresistible. Next track I'll play is Sharon Von Etten. It's called All I Can, from her record last year, Tramp. It's a beautiful song. I listened to that record pretty much more than any record last year. It just starts so softly and slowly and slowly, slowly builds from a gently played piano and then acoustic guitar comes in. In Tokyo, her voice is so beautiful and her lyrics are really sad and heartbreaking. It's a good song once you sit down and uh, start to have some conversation. You know, sitting on tour, I'd have it on my iPod and put it on headphones while everyone else was listening to Black Sabbath through the car speakers. It was a really good break. This next song is by local barrier band Grass Widow. It's called Out of Body Experience. Maybe this song comes kind of at the end of dinner when people are getting up, a few drinks in them. Very angular, post-punk craziness. But over the top is beautiful three-part female harmonies. All their harmonies intersect, and it just makes for a great cacophony, and it's beautiful. And at one point at the end, they just take out all the instruments, and they sound great together. They sound like sisters. At my dinner party, I probably wouldn't play one of my songs, but if I was going to, I'd maybe put on Wait. Not quite Grass Widow grade harmonies, but I'm doing my best. A dinner party soundtrack from Michael Cronin. His album MC2 comes out this week, and that's the dinner party download. Till next week, you can find us on Facebook or Twitter, where Dinner Party DNLD. Our assistant producer is Jackson Musker. Our interns are Tamika Adams, Davey Kim, and Brittany Martin. Peter Clowney is our executive producer. And thanks to Jeff Peters. Bon appétit.